And at the graveside, we've, we have had no expectation that at that moment, that person lying there who has passed away, who has died, would be resurrected before our eyes, or even in a few days, at least at that moment. But as Christians, we have a future hope. We know that one day all will be resurrected, some to life and some to judgment. John actually says that earlier. Some to life and some to judgment. Why the difference? Because it's all about Jesus. It's all about what he accomplished on this weekend and in his life, his death and his resurrection. It's all about the question, do you believe who he is, who he says he is? who he has proven to be, do you believe it? Do you believe, do you ever, have you recognized your own sins and shortcomings and put your faith in him alone? It's the miracle of the resurrection. Mary and the other women, the disciples, did not yet know what was going on. It was so strange and so surreal. It was, have you ever run into a, someone that you haven't maybe seen in a little while and it's out of context and you don't quite remember? You know you're supposed to know them, but you don't quite remember who they are. In a sense, it's so out of this world, out of this world surreal for these disciples, for Mary and the two other women with her, to see Jesus alive out of the, the wrappings and the cloths that they had wrapped him in, standing outside the tomb, healed. Right? He still had the wounds, but I mean, he was not like crawling out sick and needing to be healed. He was glorified, standing there. We'll go back to that verse 9 where it says, They did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. John is saying that we really didn't understand the Old Testament. When Jesus had spoken of the resurrection, we didn't get it. We didn't quite understand it. And John is saying this about himself as well as the others. Right? So John just got done saying how he was really fast, at least faster than Peter. And then he's saying now, we didn't understand it. We didn't understand what was happening that this resurrection was real. Now this could be good comfort for us because when we read the scriptures and don't fully grasp it yet, we also knew that the apostles and the disciples felt the same way at times. Right When they were with Jesus. They, they often get a bad rap. Jesus is right there in front of them. God made man, teaching them things, and they're like, I don't get it yet. And we think to ourselves, how do they not get it? And then there are times when we read scriptures and we're like, this doesn't make sense. Holy Spirit, enlighten me. John's saying that he didn't make up the story. He's not making this up. The resurrection didn't make sense to everything that they had learned and been taught. He's like, I'm not making this up. This doesn't go with what we thought was happening. This is a conclusion that we drew from our very eyes, from the very evidence before us, that we saw the risen Christ. 
somehow this man, this Jesus, who had walked with them, who had lived with them, who had eaten with them, who had washed their feet, died, was buried, and was now before them, standing outside the tomb. And as the apostles start to understand, we get the New Testament, right? We get the unfolding story of the, God, the glory of Jesus Christ revealed. As they're grasping it, and as Jesus says, and he sends the helper, the paraclete, to help them understand and know what's going on, to build the church through the confession of Jesus Christ. We get wonderful texts like Hebrews 2. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him, that you made for him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Right? There's still a mystery being revealed in the gospel. There's still sin in the world. We're waiting for that return of Jesus Christ to take away what remains and bring us to glory. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. But he didn't just taste death and die. It doesn't end there. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We are set free to the power of death. We no longer fear it. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, to satisfy the wrath of God for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when, he, when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He overcame death that day. He identifies with us. He knows what it is like to be human. It's revealed to us. And the mystery, as we have seen in, in Paul's letters, that we see through a glass darkly, but soon we will see face to face. Right? We see, we see more than those in the Old Testament. We know more. We're looking back. They were looking forward in types and shadows. Here we are. The glories of Christ revealed to us and we see through a window, not fully yet, a little bit dirty, but we see the truths of the gospel revealed to us. And someday we will see, not through the mirror, but face to face with Jesus Christ. And Jesus, in his resurrection, in his ascension, He gives us some new things. He gives us a new authority that we are no longer the authority of our life. 
he gives us new identity and he gives us new purpose. At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, one of the most famous texts of scriptures, the Great Commission passage where Jesus gives authority to the apostles to go out and make disciples and start churches. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All, not, just, not just a little bit of authority, not just all the authority over everything except that one area of your life you don't want Jesus to have authority over, but all authority has been given to Jesus. So he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all, of com- all I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. There's so much going on. He's telling I'm with them. The Spirit is coming. I'm with you. Pentecost is coming. I've given you new authority, new identity, and new purpose. Think about that, what happens in the resurrection, that Jesus proves his identity. He proves his mission, and he proves his authority that the power of death, right? What's that, what's the phrase, right? Two, two things are, you are assured of in life, right? Death and taxes, right? But not for Jesus. I mean, he died once and then was resurrected. He showed that his authority was even over that phrase, that death had no power over him. He was the ultimate authority. That's, that's, good news for us that we are not the ultimate authority but Christ is he wasn't just a moral philosopher moral teacher he was the king of kings and lord of lords he claimed to be God because he was God his claim comes with divine authority over creation and now over death and his rule goes beyond any king As we have read in Hebrews and we've seen in John, Jesus tasted death in order that he might destroy it. Death has no more sting. In Colossians, Paul writes that, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he, the head of the body of the church, is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He has authority over all creation. That includes us. So we have a new authority to follow. We have a new king to follow. Living a resurrected life means that we are placing ourselves under the rule of Christ Jesus. We are placing ourselves under his rule in the church. Right? In his family, in his community, he has gathered us together under his teaching. And always, there's so much talk about community. I think one of the reasons there's so much talk about community is people can't find it anymore. They have a difficult time finding true community. Um, and Robert Putnam, who's a um, Harvard professor, wrote a book in 2000 called Bowling Alone. In Bowling Alone, he said that people still bowl, but they don't bowl in leagues anymore, at least not at the rate that they once did. Same with like bridge clubs and um, fraternal societies. That These memberships are down because people have been in a, in a so connected world, right, of social media and Facebook and 
Twitter and all these things, in a so connected world, we have deconnected ourselves from being around true community and true people. So, and community is wonderful. Tim Keller has, uh, he encourages and warns us. He says, I have never seen a generation more desirous and interested in community. There's a real understanding that community and relationships are important. On the other hand, the younger generation doesn't want to make the sacrifice to make true community happen. You can't just leave your community because you are upset. You have to curtail your freedoms for the sake of the community. People want community but aren't willing to pay the price of true community. I've seen this in other organizations. I've seen this in the church. We are not without sin. But when we understand who our authority is, who the true head of the church is, that should bring humility to us. It should make us desire to be the true family of God, knowing that I'm not the head, the elders aren't the head, but Christ is the head. We are placing ourselves under his rule in the church in prayer and how we depend on God for what we have in our communication with him. We are saying to him we cannot do this on our own and we need his help. In repentance and faith, he is our authority. In turning and fleeing from the promises of sin and the lies of sin, and we turn to him, we turn to our superior promises and our new authority in Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we receive his promise through, by grace through repentance and faith. And ultimately, in his word, we put ourselves under his rule. That God's word teaches us to know and follow him. We read it not because it tells us of a world long ago, like some world of hobbits or orcs, evil creatures or some ring, but because it tells us about true and living God. It tells us about his character, his law, his love, his story. When I, in, the, um, in one of the songs that we sang this morning, um, it says, His commandments, His commandments become our happy choice. When David writes that the, the law is good and it's sweet like honey, we realize that we've put ourselves under the authority, the gracious and good authority of Jesus Christ. So we've been given new authority, we've been given new identity. Our source is not in ourselves, but it is given to us. And our identity comes from Jesus Christ and him alone. In our culture, we we define ourselves in a number of ways. When you introduce yourself to someone, you say, Hi, my name is, whatever your name is, it's like Joe. Um, It's like, what do you do? What's What's your job? A lot of times our identity is defined by our job, our vocation, our calling. Maybe your job is to wrangle four kids, one kid all day and try to teach them something. Maybe your job is a teacher, accountant, engineer, something like that. You might say, well, I'm a Christian, I'm a Buddhist. If you're a recovering alcoholic, you know that in Alcoholics Anonymous, right? I'm an alcoholic. 
you still have this identity that you carry with you to remind yourself of where you came from and where you are going. Right? I'm a I'm a husky. I graduated from Yukon, maybe. I didn't. Right? Political affiliation seems to be more and more of an identity. Your generational, I'm Gen X, I'm a millennial, I'm in between. So I was born in 1980, which means I have all the benefits of both generations and none of the weaknesses. You see how that, you see how that works? Right? I'm a Christian, I am a disciple. Christ removes your burden, the burden that we have, to attain some sort of identity in our world, to attain some sort of social status or power status or financial status. And he gives it to you. It's a gift that he bestows upon you. He says, you are my child. You are part of my family. You are a friend of God. You are a servant You are a missionary, a sent one. You are a reconciler. You are blessed. You are a new creation. You have been resurrected. You are a holy one. You are set apart. Because of the new identity I give to you. And we are no longer defined by our successes. And our failures. We are no longer worried that our identity is tied to whether or not I did something or didn't do something this week. Whether or not I got a bad report from my boss. Whether or not I evangelized X number of people this week. Whether or not I sinned multiple times over and over and over. Your identity is given to you by grace through Jesus Christ. So new authority, new identity, and new purpose. When we are given a new purpose, we have something to live for that's outside of ourselves. That's been given to us as well by grace. We no longer live for ourselves, but we live for others. We live to make disciples of Jesus. In general, that's our new mission. That's our new purpose, is to make more little Christians. And so we do that in our family and in the church. We look back at Malachi 2.15. Did he not make them one? Talking about marriage here. Did he not make them one? with a portion of the Spirit in their union. That's an interesting mystery. we we'll dig in some other time. The, the Spirit is, is capitalized here. That the Spirit, Christ gives us the Spirit in Pentecost to the church. And yet the Spirit is in some sense part of marriage, even before Pentecost. With a portion of the Spirit in their union. And what was the one God seeking? He was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. So this, new, this commandment isn't new, right? Go and make disciples. It was given to the Jews in the Old Testament. 
make followers of God in your family. Right? Paul reiterates this in 2 Corinthians when he says, do not be unequally yoked in marriage. The reason is because how can we as a, as a couple, as a married couple, move towards discipling our children if we are pulling in opposite directions? So think about what this means, that unequally yoked means two different species of animal being yoked by the yoke of, of one. So right next, right next to the mule is the oxen, and they're trying to work together under one yoke. Now you can imagine the craziness and antics that might ensue by having two different beasts of burden working under one yoke that was made for the oxen or the mule. But if the mule is pulling in one direction and the oxen is another, the work, the purpose, the mission, the plowing, the seeding would not get done. You can imagine the, the oxen, how much bigger it is pulling the mule in a circle and the mule fighting it the whole time. So guard yourselves. If you aren't on the same mission, yoked to the same purpose, to raise children who love Jesus, you are unequally yoked and you are pulling in opposite directions. Again, in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, go and make disciples, go and baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to, to obey in the church, our mission to do that, to make disciples to teach people to obey the commandments of God, to baptize them into the church. And then in John 20, 17, which we just read, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. There's so much more going on here. Uh, the Greek word for ascended is anabino, which is the church planning network that we are actually a part of out of New Haven, Connecticut. Mission anabino. And the reason is because the church has been given the ascended ministry of Christ Jesus. It was his purpose to ascend, but he, hadn't, he was not ready yet. So he said, don't cling, don't cling to me. Don't hold on to me, because at some point, I'm going to ascend. And what happens when I do? I'm going to be an advocate for you to the Father. I'm going to sit at his right hand, interceding for you on a perpetual basis. Because that's how much I love you. What else am I going to do? I'm going to send that spirit. The helper, the helper that I told you about a couple chapters ago in John 14, I'm going to send that helper to you, for you, so that you can fulfill your purpose to be the body of Christ, to literally be the temple presence of Jesus Christ on this earth. We're actually going to go into more detail next week as we continue the last week of our Easter series, little short three-week Easter series, about what it means to be the temple presence of Jesus Christ. What does this anabino mean? You may be sitting here, you might be doubting that this even ever happened. 
How do we really know that Jesus was raised from the dead? That history cries out to this fact. There's a truth that Jesus was real. That he was crucified. That he was buried. That the tomb was empty. These are all truths. Historical, factual truths. As Christians, we believe Jesus was the Son of God and that he was resurrected. That's why the tomb was empty. It wasn't that that the body was moved to stop some political insurrection, but that the tomb was empty because Jesus Christ got up alive and walked out. You might be doubting. I think, didn't the disciples go in there and take the body, steal it, overpower these highly trained Roman guards who would have fought to the death because if they allowed it to happen, they would have been killed? I mean, didn't this... I mean, when you think of the disciples and the apostles, don't you think of like a Navy SEAL-type group? You know, the one guy with the sword can't even cut it, you know, kill a guy. He misses and cuts his ear off. That's not the, that's not the, they're not some elite trained group. This isn't a group that was going to go storm in and take the body of Jesus Christ. And if it was even true, what, did they die to cover up a lie? Did all of them decide, you know, let's make a pact where we're all going to die? Right, Peter and Paul both martyred in Rome. Andrew was sent to the land of the, of the man-eaters, which is now the Soviet Union. If you're a Russian, that's okay. If us Irish have a bad heritage as well, as well, it's not. Christians there claim him as the first to bring the gospel to the land. He was said to have, as he preached in modern-day Turkey and Greece, he was said to have been crucified. Right, doubting Thomas. It's in the area most active in East Syria. Some tradition, it says, preaching even as far as India. Because ancient Christians revere him as their founder. They claim that he died there when he was pierced by the spears of four soldiers. You have Philip, who had a powerful ministry in Carthage in North Africa and then in Asia Minor, where he converted the wife of a Roman in retaliation. The Roman had him arrested and put to death. James, had, the Jewish historian Josephus, reported that he was stoned and then clubbed to death. I believe that the death of these apostles, these eyewitnesses, these first to encounter the risen Jesus Christ, that there is a level of historicity that's beyond disbelief. Now, this doesn't mean, because we know this isn't true, that when we get all the facts, we just need facts, then we would believe. But we know that the Spirit reveals these things to those in faith. People do not die for their own lives, their own half-truths, their own fabrications, especially in our group. The apostles truly died proclaiming to have seen Jesus Christ dead and then alive and then ascended into heaven. 
that they truly proclaimed that Christ is who he says he was. That they truly believed he was God incarnate. Now you might object to this saying, well, there are plenty who die for crazy beliefs. It doesn't take going back in even our own history as a nation to look at terrorist attacks and see suicide bombers, see people who would take planes and die by crashing into buildings. Does this mean that if you die for something, it has to be true? No, that's not what it means. People have died for something they believed and it doesn't make it true. But there's a big difference in dying for something that you believe, having received your belief from someone else, and dying because you have seen something with your very own eyes. Not just by yourself, but with other eyewitnesses. Hundreds, the Bible says, eyewitnesses to Jesus Christ. That you have died for something that you believe because you witnessed those events and established the belief through them. Really, it comes down to this. That this world we live in is broken. It's obvious. It's obvious when you drive out of here and you encounter people in their cars being unkind to one another. When you have your own garden and you... you, cut your own grass and you do all the things necessary and weeds come up and thorns cut you. When you want to play in the woods and you come out and you don't know what's going on and all of a sudden you have poison ivy all over. When people you love turn on you and you don't know why. When you sin against someone else. We see in everyday life that this world is broken. We all know this. The Bible calls this sin. That sin separates us from God. But we know this, that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to rescue and save us. That through his perfect, sinless life, through his death on the cross, as propitiation for our sins, as an atonement for us, And that through his resurrection that we are able to move from being enemies of God to being his children, adopted into the family of God. That in itself is a miracle. How do we do this? That we do this through repenting of our sins, recognizing that we are far from God and putting our faith in Jesus Christ. The Jesus Christ that rose again from the dead, conquering sin and death. That we repent of our sin in your life and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That you would be welcomed into the family of God, welcomed into this church and to any church that believes the true gospel. That if you do this, that you will be part of the family of God. And if you want to pray this morning, I will pray with you. But let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we do pray and thank you for this wonderful gift. The gift of Jesus Christ.